Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you. You're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Good morning, and it's always an interesting day on the uh, 2024 presidential campaign watch, and you may have seen the headline yesterday that Governor Ron DeSantis has uh, shaken things up yet again for his campaign, so he has uh, changed campaign managers in what the media is calling a massive shakeup. Uh, but, you know, these things happen, and campaign manager uh, Janera Peck has been moved to the position of chief strategist James Uthmeyer, who served as uh, Governor DeSantis's chief of staff in his gubernatorial office, will now lead the governor's presidential bid, sources confirmed to uh, to me and also a, a bunch of news outlets. <laughs> and uh, the quote from communications director Andrew Ramos said, James Uthmeyer has been one of Governor DeSantis's top advisors for years, and he is needed where it matters most, working hand in hand with Jenna Peck and the rest of the team to put the governor in the best possible position to win this primary and defeat Joe Biden. So here to talk about this and more is Ryan Tyson, who is a senior advisor to the DeSantis campaign and a pollster. So Ryan, good morning. Good morning, Jenna. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining me. So, uh, you know, the media is shaping this as, you know, this is yet another shakeup for the DeSantis campaign. And it's because of, you know, the dwindling polls and they're making this sound like it's a massive earthquake. Um, you know, I'm old enough to remember uh, when uh, when President Trump had a number of, of campaign strategists and, and shakeups. I don't think that this is particularly novel. But uh, what can you tell us about uh, where the campaign for the governor is headed? Well, first of all, I, I completely agree with you. I don't call this a shakeup. I, I call this a buildup. Um, you know, voters are not paying attention to the process stories uh, that the media likes to shove in their face every single day. The reality is, Jenna, it's summertime. Uh, voters in Iowa and New Hampshire, their summer isn't even close to being over yet. Their kids aren't even about to go to school. Kids in the South are about to start going back to school here soon. But this election hasn't even really started in earnest yet. And I think what the governor has done is he has uh, recognized that the campaign needs to focus primarily in these first early states. We've leaned up. We're building up in those states. And I have to tell you, all the leading indicators in our data says that we are we're shaping up right where we need to be to end the third quarter and start the push for the fourth quarter of this election. Well, and so with those uh, with those indicators, you know, obviously, uh the Trump campaign and uh, and of course the media as well would point to the polls and say you know what's the point uh, President Trump is going to win the nomination by you know 30 40 points um, so what do you make of that and what is uh, what does your internal data say that's differently yeah well the, the first thing is is that we don't run national primaries um, we run primaries by states and what is forgotten most of the time in context with these national surveys uh, is that statistically zero uh, of the voters that will actually be voting in these first four early states are represented in these national surveys. Um, we know that this is a two-man race. That's confirmed in national surveys as well as in state surveys. 
Uh, but the former president is under 40 percent in all of the early states. Uh, the governor sits around 20, mid-20s and just about all of them as well. Um, South Carolina is a three-way tie for second place right now, I think, is the best guess um, that, that we can project, having you know Nikki Haley and Tim Scott there. Uh, but the reality is, is that all of the leading indicators uh, for the former president's renomination have actually declined over the summertime. Um, and I think they know that, too, as reflected in the way that they've been campaigning specifically towards us uh, over the course of the summer. Um, I want to reiterate, these first four early states may only reflect 6% of the delegates that that'll be cast. They're about 80% of the momentum that'll come into Super Tuesday in the four states that'll take place uh, between uh, South Carolina and Super Tuesday. So uh, we're excited. Uh, as you, I don't know if you saw, the media doesn't like to give it a lot of attention. Uh, the governor hit 16 counties in Iowa this weekend with the first lady and their family. A lot of energy on the ground. They're grinding. They're out there meeting voters in Iowa. They're out there asking voters to caucus for them. It's a long process, and it's one that's only just begun. Yeah, and the governor uh, is going to all of the counties in Iowa. I think it's, what, 99 counties in Iowa? That's right. Uh, and and. And so, you know, definitely going and and meeting people on the ground, which is, uh, you know, a lot, I think a lot more people pay attention to someone uh, who comes out to meet them face to face than, uh, you know, anything that the national media would suggest. Um, I'll give you a little bit more, a little bit more anecdotal information on that point. When you meet caucus goers in Iowa, understand how much different that is for your listeners uh, than a typical primary. A caucus goer is somebody that goes to a gym or to a home or a library or church or something to that effect, and they have to camp out for a couple of hours. Uh, This is a commitment. Uh, uh, They have to get in there. They have to hang out for a while before they even can get a chance to start caucusing for somebody. And what's fascinating when you meet these people is they truly see it as a birthright of being an Iowan. They see it as their job is to meet all the candidates, to get to know them, to ask them the tough questions, and to truly vet their candidacy. Uh, When you meet caucus goers, they'll say, well, I've only met three of the candidates that are running so far. And, you know, I like the DeSantis guy. I've only asked him two questions. I've got about three or four more before I make up my mind. I am not making that up. That is how uh, the caucus goers in Iowa feel, and even more so that way uh, up in New Hampshire. So it, it is a process it's going to take a while, and we look forward to getting out to Iowa again this weekend for the fair. And uh, and, and I think that that's an apt description from uh, from Iowa, and certainly what we saw with uh, with the Family Leader Summit that all of the candidates, um, other than the former president, came and sat down with uh, Tucker Carlson and in some of the interviews of the people there and uh, how they appreciated uh, just hearing from the candidates and, and getting to know them. And I think um, my opinion is it actually hurt uh, President Trump to not go. And um, he made that calculation and, and that was uh, was his decision there. Um, but one of the, the criticisms of the governor's campaign so far is that he hasn't really done um, a lot of national media and and certainly not as much opposition media. He did have an interview with NBC. Um, He has started to to do some more of that as the campaign has gone through several iterations. So how important in uh, your mind and in in the campaign's mind is um, getting out more on national media to to kind of build a name beyond just uh, within the context of those states, but for uh, the American people's perception as a whole? It's very, very important. Um, I, I would remind you, he just did a sit down with NBC uh, earlier this week when he was in Iowa. Um, he'll be doing much, many more of those, and he'll do more of the opposition media, as we like to call it, 
uh, very soon as well. Just as a reminder, just to keep everybody in context here, the horse race nature of this primary that the media seems to be shoving down the voters' throats right now, uh, it, it's a little early, okay? This campaign launched with a goal to have a record 24 hours, and it did uh, in terms of its fundraising. Second goal was to make sure we closed out the second quarter, what little bit of the second quarter we had with record fundraising numbers. And not only did we do that, we outraised the former president and the current sitting president over that time frame as well. The third quarter was to start to get out there, make, uh, make, make ground in Iowa, start to meet voters, start to build our operations in Iowa and New Hampshire. We started to do that as we get towards the end of the third quarter and voters begin to wake up, voters begin to actually shift into gear. By the way, most survey work that I've done shows that these early states, about 70 percent of the voters will begin to pay attention and make a decision after Labor Day. That would be after the first debate. So everything is going uh, according to plan at this point in terms of launching the campaign, hitting fundraising numbers, and getting out and meeting voters. I I would just offer to you that right now the media is trying to portray that the voters are in a place that they simply are not right now. Voters are ready to meet these candidates. We are five months away from the caucuses. There's a long way left to go, uh, and there's a lot of time left on the clock. And I see with Ryan Tyson, who is a senior advisor to the DeSantis campaign and also a pollster. So uh, then, Ryan, then let's talk about uh, James Uthmeyer, who um, has been the chief of staff for uh, the governor's uh, for his actual gubernatorial office. And now he's being brought in as the campaign manager. How is that going to continue this strategy or shake things up? I don't think it's a shakeup again. I mean, James has been a, a dear friend and confidant of the first family uh, for several years now. It's no surprise to any of us that uh, that are in the governor's orbit that uh, he's made the decision to bring him on over here full time. Uh, James did an incredible job of running state government. He's going to do an incredible job of leading our team uh, over here, and we really look forward to welcoming him here. Great. And and one of the uh, the criticisms that I have heard is that he has not uh, run a certainly a national campaign or been a campaign manager on any level. Do you think that that uh, th- that calculation plays into this at all, or is he the right person uh, in in your mind? I mean, certainly he is in the governor's mind for the job. Uh, it, it is not in the governor's calculus to go out and find the the, the most professional, skilled political class consultant uh, to to run his operation here. He needs somebody that he trusts, and he needs somebody that he knows how to run an organization. That's what he's done here. Uh, it's really nothing more than that, uh, and and we reject the premise to the to the contrary. And Ryan, in the last few minutes that I have with you here, and I certainly appreciate your time, let's um, let's turn to the debate then, because that's coming up uh, in two weeks. And so the likely, uh, my opinion is, and if I were advising uh, President Trump, I, I think that he will likely not attend. Um, there are certainly pros and cons to that position. But if he wants people to believe the polls that he actually is up 30 to 40 percent, then his calculation likely would be, well, why do I need to attend? And I'm just going to ride out the polls and uh, and and get the American people to to believe that that's accurate. So if he doesn't attend, uh, what is the calculation from the DeSantis campaign in terms of what uh, the governor needs to do at the debates uh, if the former president doesn't come? The the governor's a proven leader. I think that's what uh, voters around the country already know about him. They've seen how he led. Uh, They've seen how he stood up um, to the insiders and to the media in the most trying test 
that a political figure has faced in 100 years uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic. So we look forward to the opportunity, uh, being able to show the country that the governor is a proven leader uh, on all of the things that many folks on that stage that are very fine folks, but many folks on that stage either market themselves as having been done uh, or try to set themselves up as committing that they will do. We look forward to showing that the governor's already done this. He's got a record of accomplishment uh, here in the state of Florida, and he looks forward to taking that nationally uh, to be the, the next president of the United States. So does his strategy change at all if uh, President Trump does decide to attend? Uh, it, it doesn't, because now we're going to talk about consistent leadership, leadership that doesn't uh, fold uh, in the wake of either media pressure or, most importantly, from uh, insiders inside the government, um, people such as Dr. Fauci or whatnot. Uh, it'll be consistent leadership that he looks forward to uh, highlighting in his record, as well as the fact that he's the strongest leader on that stage. All right. Well, Ryan Tyson, really appreciate your time. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's interesting watching this and uh, seeing all of this unfold. But as you mentioned, and I totally agree with your comment that this is still really early. And, and the mainstream media loves to talk about, uh, you know, how this, this race is already set. It's already over, basically. And, you know, here we're still so far out. And, and I think you're right that a lot of people aren't specifically paying attention unless they're uh, very, very insider politicos or they, you know, they listen to my show or they listen to others. But I think that the average person um, in terms of voting is not uh, has not committed yet. And certainly that intensity as well is uh, is very different uh, from what you see in the national polls at least from what I've talked to, to a lot of people um, in multiple states and, and even listeners here, they write in all the time. And so um, I think we still have a long way to go, but um, it's going to be really interesting, I think, as well to see whether uh, President Trump is going to decide to debate. Um, that's really the question. And um, and like I said, I think that he the calculation is going to be that he will decide uh, he wants people to believe the polls, whether he actually is 30, 40 points ahead. Um, I don't particularly put stock in any of the polls. Um, and I think that we've seen that in 2016 and 2020 um, and even before that. So I think that that's going to be his calculation. But, hey, we still have two weeks to go. So we'll see. All right. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And let's turn our attention to big tech. Uh, yesterday, if you missed that, I had Attorney General Andrew Bailey uh, come on. And he was also on my podcast yesterday. You can find that at thejennaellisshow.com, uh, talking about Missouri versus Biden, which is the most important case in the country right now. And uh, in his terms, and I think this is a brilliant summation, we need to build a wall of separation between big tech and state. But what about big tech itself and how big tech is still perhaps censoring uh, content creators. So yesterday, X, which is formerly Twitter, um, a lot of us who are conservatives are uh, very grateful to Elon Musk. And uh, so far, a lot of uh, the 
decisions that he's made in terms of X and some of uh, the the ways that um, that new platform has functioned have been great. Uh, but yesterday, X announced that X remains committed to brand safety, and we continue to build more controls for advertisers. Today, we're thrilled to announce our extended partnership uh, with a company that is called Integral Ad Science to provide additional pre-bid brand safety and suitability solutions to help advertisers achieve their unique suitability needs. But that's not all. We're also announcing two new capabilities, sensitivity settings and enhanced block list for advertisers. So what does this exactly mean? Well, uh, my good friend Christian Losfall, who is a communication specialist, uh, tweeted this in response. Elon Musk's World Economic Forum affiliated CEO has officially tied X's quote unquote brand safety to GARM, G-A-R-M, a World Economic Forum backed operation to maintain advertiser compliance to left wing standards. The companies affiliated with GARM make up over 90% of advertiser dollars in the market. So Christian Losfeld joins me now. And uh, Christian, I think that this is very concerning uh, to all of us who are on on the X platform and should be concerning for any conservatives uh, that are concerned about big tech and this so-called uh, brand safety. It absolutely is, particularly because uh, Elon bought Twitter under the auspices of setting speech free, particularly for conservatives who were specifically targeted, as we've come to learn more and more with the formerly known as Twitter files and then recently with uh, Jim Jordan's Facebook files, where we know these big tech platforms were coordinating with the federal government, particularly the executive branch, to silence mainstream conservative opinions on things like COVID, on the war in Ukraine, and a number of other issues that so far we happen to be right on. But this new partnership with X and Integral Ad Sciences, when I initially saw it, you see these words like brand safety and suitability, and they sound nice on the surface, but they've become buzzwords for the left which really mean our efforts to ensure compliance with a left-wing standard. So I just did a quick, I clicked the link that the ex-CEO, Linda Yaccarino, tweeted out or posted out. Now it's not tweets anymore. And right away in the first line, it says that the Integral Ad Sciences is aligned with the Global Alliance for Responsible Media Safety and Suitability Framework, or GARM. And I had just watched a video from ben, uh, the Daily Wire's Ben Shapiro a couple of days earlier talking about how the companies that are partnered with GARM compose about 90% or more than 90% of advertiser dollars in the market. So what does that mean for X? Well, your account might not be suspended for saying that COVID came from the Wuhan lab, for example. However, a content creator that makes content saying that may be flagged with these new safety sensitivity settings so that advertisers don't put dollars behind that creator. So your platform is greatly diminished. Your chance at ad revenue is greatly diminished. And then when you make other content that maybe doesn't violate these safety standards as set by a World Economic Forum-backed company, it still may mean that advertisers won't put money on that content because you're already flagged as a more sensitive account from a previous post that you created. So once again, the deep state, the left, the global elite, the World Economic Forum, is now embedded into X, which Elon, again, purchased under the auspices that this would not be the case anymore. And as of this morning, I checked his page. I have seen nothing uh, on his account that he has 
commented on this or that he's even aware of it. So it's definitely something that needs to be more attention needs to be brought to because hopefully he'll stick to his promises uh, that he bought the company under and realize the threat that this is for the very kind of speech that he purchased the platform to make sure it wouldn't get censored. Yeah, this is really concerning. And um, a number of conservatives, um, including you and uh, including me yesterday, uh, have tweeted at or X to whatever we want to call it posted at him (laughs) yesterday saying that this is a valid concern for content creators who monetize their accounts. And uh, our our good friend Eric uh, Spracklin, who uh, still works for Project Veritas, uh, tweeted this saying, this is concerning Elon Musk. Where is the transparency for creators so they can see what kind of sensitivity threshold, quote unquote, they have been deemed uh, as for potential advertisers? Is there a process in which creators are continually reevaluated for their content sensitivity threshold? And he also uh, posted, and I'm not sure if this was actually from uh, the ex-business uh, standards, but there's this um, there's this kind of chart from sen- mm-hmm. that's labeled sensitivity settings, uh, relaxed, standard, and conservative. And th- this is really interesting, uh, Christian, to to ask that question of Elon Musk. Is this going to be like the visibility reduction where a lot of the conservative accounts that were shadow banned or visibility reduced? Uh, didn't know that it was just plainly obvious by the type of engagement. So is this is there going to be any kind of transparency for creators to know are they being labeled with a certain sensitivity threshold level and are actually uh, being targeted to not have as much advertisement um, ability because of the viewpoints that their accounts show? Right. And I certainly hope that there will be increased transparency for accounts to be able to see where they're ranked on those sensitivity settings. And to your question on whether it came straight from X, the X business page. Yes, it did. Uh, it's one of the items on that link that the X business account posted uh, under the subheading introducing sensitivity settings. Essentially, what this will do is give advertisers the ability to see, OK, how high risk according to GARM's standards, is putting ad dollars behind this content creator's uh, content. So if you've, say, for example, and I'm pulling these two because these are specifically mentioned on GARM as new guidelines that they introduced as of June 2022, in their words, quote, in the wake of the Ukraine war and the COVID-19 pandemic, which are two topics, once again, that conservatives have been right on a lot of what we've said that the state has not appreciated us talking about. So, Under uh, these sensitivity settings, let's say you, for example, have done a podcast and you talk about all of the things that COVID and the regime lied to us about regarding COVID. Well, now you may fall lower in those sensitivity settings. So when an advertiser comes around the next time to say, hmm, do I want to sponsor Jenna Ellis's podcast that she uploads in full on, on X, they may see that you have been placed under the standard or conservative category because you have violated GARM's speech standards or GARM's advertising safety standards, immediately removing your ability to receive that revenue and then by extension, get all of the boosting that comes from being a good content creator, not as determined by some outside third-party platform associated with the World Economic Forum, but as determined by the audience who uses the platform, appreciating and validating the content that you create for its own merit and worth. So even if the transparency is introduced, which I would hope Elon would do and seems like something that he would be in support of, that doesn't change the fact that 
you might be able to see you've fallen under the conservative ranking. But now, in order for you to get out of that, if that option even exists, you may have to delete those posts that violate the GARM safety standards, or you might have to stop talking about those things for a certain length of time before that sensitivity setting is changed, which is a de facto censorship. So the post stays up, but it's not going to receive the same exposure that it would otherwise receive without this affiliation attached to it. And this is just ridiculous. I think uh, Christian Lossell, who's a communications uh, specialist for the Heritage Foundation, and um, you know, this reminds me of all of the uh, DEI and ESG standards that the big corporations bring in and bring upon themselves that they have to have some sort of compliance with these external standards that are imposed and they somehow think that this is a benefit and then they do things like the Bud Light campaign uh, with Dylan Mulvaney that you know trans activist and now their their stock is utterly failing and you know they they have thankfully uh, had a lot of consumer backlash on that but the only reason that that happened to begin with is because of these external standards that were imposed upon uh, major corporations. And so the fact that Elon Musk and his new CEO are bringing in these Global Alliance for Responsible Media standards that um, really is a framework, I think, for big tech censorship under the auspices of uh, saying, well, we want to make sure everything is quote unquote safe. Well, what does safe speech actually mean? If it if it means that this is against a preferred narrative, where is that narrative coming from? Well, if it's the World Economic Forum, that's not really a um, a good standard. And so, um, so where where should conservatives go from here in terms of uh, looking at this and these new X um, standards and these thresholds? Because what benefit would this possibly give Elon Musk? to have his CEO impose these types of GARM standards when, as you pointed out, he has been an advocate for free speech for all and no discrimination based on viewpoint. I think it's important to remember that Elon Musk is not a conservative. He has never voted for a Republican before. He is good on the speech issue, but he is still very much a creature of the left, so to speak, Not definitely not a global elitist from what we've seen so far. But this whole idea of what we're really up against is kind of new to his worldview framework. I mean, the fact that he put Linda Yaccarino as the CEO when she's a executive chairwoman with the World Economic Forum, that was a cause for concern at the beginning. Now, most people, because of Elon's track record and what he was already doing with then Twitter and now X, were willing to give it a chance. But here, we understand that he's looking to monetize the platform, that what he purchased did not have the user base that Twitter initially told him it did. So he's lost money on it. He has shown himself to be pretty principled on maintaining free speech thus far, but it remains to be seen how committed he really is to that when it comes to making money on the platform, because that's what this is right now. Uh, I looked at one of his replies uh, on his profile last night. Somebody complained that his following and his reach was far larger than a different content creator. And yet this other content creator brought in a lot more revenue than he did. And Elon's response was, you have to find advertisers that are willing to put money behind it. So that is an indicator that he may be okay with standards like this if it means that the company will become profitable. 
Obviously, you and I would disagree with that because it would come at the expense of very mainstream conservative ideas that have had a great record of being correct in the last two or three years. Um, but it remains to be seen. Will he change this if it, if it gets to his attention and he realizes what what this comes with, what this um, integral ad services comes with, with these GARM standards? And will he get rid of it? Or will he continue to trust, again, his World Economic Forum-affiliated CEO, who we were willing to give a chance at first, but is now showing that she's going to tie this platform to the very same people uh, that were causing problems for it before? Now, in terms of what do we do, uh, I think X is still the largest and freest big tech platform, thanks to Elon Musk. But I think it shows the importance of conservatives continuing to keep alternatives alive. It remains to be seen what Elon will do with this. But we do have to keep in mind that a parallel economy is something we're going to need to continue supporting in the event that even something like this, Elon buying X, falls through and falls back into the hands of an organization like the World Economic Forum. Yeah, I think that that's really wise advice, uh, Christian Lossville. And, you know, we have seen after uh, the rise of the new Twitter or X with Elon Musk, um, a lot of the other uh, conservative-backed platforms like uh, Getter, even uh, President Trump's Truth Social, you know, some of those um, have been less used. And, uh, and and a lot of people have said, OK, well, you know, Facebook and Meta are, are what they are. And, you know, we're kind of putting that aside. But now um, they're almost viewing X as a more conservative platform. And there's every indication, at least with all of this and the GARM standards, that that may not actually be the case. And so, um, you know, I continue to have all of my social media platforms out. I do use X uh, the most. And I think that, you know, Elon uh, putting out um, all of this uh, type of um, ability for content creators in terms of streaming, um, as you mentioned, I can I can stream um, my entire long form podcast. Um, that's a new thing. We used to be limited to only 10 minutes if we had Twitter Media Studio. Um, regular accounts could only have, I think, about two and a half minutes. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, content ability that has been factored into X. Uh, but with these types of parameters and threshold, it's it's very concerning because um, instead of just saying, okay, if you're an advertiser and you're going to put out all of your um, advertising embedded into um, whatever tweets themselves meet a certain threshold for visibility, and that's equal across the board, and there's equal opportunity for every account. That's what the platform was suggesting, at least when Elon Musk ruled out uh, the monetization. But now it seems like, well, there's going to be a caveat. So I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Christian Lossville, how can people uh, reach you and also the Heritage Foundation? You can find my personal profiles at Christian Lasval across basically every platform that exists that hasn't banned me. Um, and you can find Heritage on X at Heritage and visit Heritage.org to see our work and the other platforms you can find us on. Excellent. All right. Thanks so much. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. 
Welcome back. And we are still in the National Truth for Youth Bible Week on AFR. That is August 7th through 11th, 2023. But, you know, continue this even past this week. You can still help us give away thousands of free Bibles to young people across America as Christian young people reach their campuses for Christ then we can help a generation of young people get the word of God back into public schools through the distribution of the popular Truth For Youth Bible to teens across our nation. There are two ways to help us order these free Bibles. Visit truthforyouth.com, order online anytime, or call 833-574-1600. That's 833-574-1600. And uh, help us continue to give away these uh, Bibles and make sure that we are getting the truth of the gospel of Christ uh, spread to our young people across the country. All right, let's turn now to the economy. Uh, The headline from the New York Post is that American credit card debt soars past $1 trillion. The credit card debt held by U.S. shoppers surpassed more than $1 trillion for the first time ever as high inflation continues to drive up costs, according to a report published uh, on Tuesday by the New York Federal Reserve. And also, stocks are dropping as U.S. banking credit downgrades, according to MSNBC. Stocks retreated Tuesday as an August sell-off was reignited by a downgrade of the banking sector by credit rating agencies. Moody's, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down. And of course, Joe Biden uh, spoke about his Bidenomics and his big plan to solve America's economy crisis. And he spoke to the quote unquote success of the Inflation Reduction Act and to climate change. So uh, what is Bidenomics and how is this uh, not, in my opinion, succeeding, but actually failing? Uh, Here to discuss is Brandon Arnold, who is the executive vice president at the National Taxpayers Union. So uh, Brandon, thanks so much for joining. And I think that um, the economy is really probably the number one concern of most Americans uh, looking at all of the factors involved. So uh, where is President Biden on this and uh, Biden in terms of a potential solution. Yeah, good morning, Jenna. Thanks for having me on the program. Um, it's, it's a good question. Bidenomics in the eyes of Joe Biden is this wonderful thing that has brought prosperity to this country, to this globe, perhaps. But when you look at actually what's taking place, Bidenomics is a top-down government-run solution to all of our problems that ends up not working out well for just about everybody. And in fact, driving up inflation, um, throwing a wrench into recovering housing market and other sectors of the economy. Bidenomics is the reason why credit card debt is as high as it is, because we've seen consumers have to spend way more money than they otherwise would have just to afford basic necessities, to keep a roof over their head, to keep food on their table, to pay their utility bills. All of these things have grown incredibly in terms of prices since Biden took office to the tune of about 17% across the board. And of course, some things have gotten far more expensive than others. If you have to buy a car in today's market, God bless you. It's going to be a really rocky road. It's going to be very tough. So that's Bidenomics. He's out there on the road. He's in uh, Arizona, New Mexico, trying to pitch this as a success story. Fortunately, Americans aren't buying it. 
Yeah, I don't really think that anyone reasonable is is buying the success of uh, Bidenomics, but at the same time, um, you know, few Democrats are willing to actually acknowledge that. So on the other side of the aisle, uh, what are Republicans really doing um, in in Congress or even within the states to fight uh, inflation and um, and and especially in Congress in terms of uh, the national debt and also a possible recession on the horizon? Yeah, it's been tough because it's been such an uphill battle. You know, we're, we're undoing a lot of the policies that were implemented over the past two years when Democrats controlled Congress and the White House, the Inflation Reduction Act, a complete disaster of a piece of legislation uh, that didn't, if anything, increased inflation, didn't decrease it, increased our deficits. And subsequent uh, data from uh, independent verifiers have showed that a lot of the programs in there that were supposed to cost a couple hundred billion are going to cost over a trillion dollars, like the green energy tax credit. So one of the things Republicans are doing are trying to scale back spending across the board. They're trying to implement better tax policy. There's a really important tax bill that's moving in the House of Representatives right now that invests in the American economy by incentivizing businesses to invest in things like research and development, capital investments, growing their factories, manufacturing facilities, and so forth, and does so by rescinding a lot of the dollars that were spent on the Inflation Reduction Act that we're trying to hand over, the Biden administration is trying to hand over to its buddies in the green energy sector. So taking that money away and instead using that to incentivize job growth and economic development here domestically in this country to create good American jobs. That's a really important piece of legislation. Again, it's not going to solve all of our problems, but it will help to undo some of the mess that's been created by Bidenomics. I'm speaking with Brandon Arnold, who's the executive vice president at the National Taxpayers Union. And uh, what about the Fiscal Responsibility Act? I mean, there that was um, kind of met with it with a mixed response in terms of Republicans and conservatives um, ultimately supporting Kevin McCarthy and uh, kind of his reason for pushing that through. But a lot of um, our friends who are, I would say, more conservative in Congress actually didn't think that that was a good idea. Yeah, it's a tough issue. And, and I'll be honest, you know, I supported it. The National Taxpayers Union supported it, even recognizing that it wasn't a perfect bill, even recognizing that we have a lot more work to do. Because in my mind, when you have an opportunity to reduce the deficit, you take it. You take it and you move on to the next fight. And I think that's what we did here with the Fiscal Responsibility Act. A lot of conservatives, a lot of very good conservatives supported it because it's not just about creating ideal policy, perfect policy, if that policy can't be signed into law, can't be enacted into law and take effect. I think we were able to move the conversation dramatically from where Biden started when this debt ceiling negotiation began. He said, we're not going to cut spending at all. We're not going to do anything. We're going to do a clean debt ceiling all the way to a point where we're cutting $1.5 to $2 trillion in spending. Now, there's a lot of work that needs to be done because already we're seeing members of the Senate, both on the Republican and Democratic side, saying, oh, these caps are advisory in nature. We're not actually going to follow them. They've already teed up a plan, again, signed off on by both Republicans and Democrats in the United States Senate to increase spending by $14 billion this year above what the caps that were established by the Fiscal Responsibility Act would allow for. So this fight is an eternal fight. We're never going to win this. Absolutely. We're always going to be battling with the left over the size and scope of the federal government. I think the Fiscal Responsibility Act was a win. It wasn't a huge win, but it was an important one. And now we need to move on to the next fight. 
Yeah, and, and I was with you in that, and I had uh, Congressman Mike Johnson on, uh, Trish Regan, you know, a few other uh, people to, in Congress, um, and, and also kind of the pros and cons. I mean, some people who opposed it, but um, I was for it at, for the exact reasons that you just articulated, uh, Brandon, which is that we're never going to get perfect legislation, especially in the political climate and certainly with the composition of uh, the the House majority and, and where Republicans are at in the Senate right now and the fact that we don't have the White House. And so um, we're still not going to get perfect legislation. And so if this is a good start, then let's at least take that step and we can continue to build upon that later. Um, so are we really building on that, though? Because that was Speaker McCarthy's uh, promise was that the Fiscal Responsibility Act was a good start, but now we need to build on that. And so as we're especially going into um, kind of the, the heat of the uh, the 2024 presidential cycle, the economy is going to be um, a huge issue, I think probably more for the general than even for the primary, um, especially when, you know, whoever the nominee is uh, gets on the debate stage with Joe Biden if Joe Biden ends up uh, still running. And, you know, I, I still think there's a very good possibility he'll be replaced with uh, Gavin Newsom, but we'll see. But either way, um, Republicans and Democrats are always going to clash over the economy, especially with the state of Bidenomics. So, um, so are we building on the Fiscal Responsibility Act um, in terms of the House majority? And where is this going to set us um, in terms of the state of the economy looking forward to the presidential cycle? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think you framed it really well, uh, because I think the general election is where the state of the economy is really going to be fought. And I don't know, I won't pretend to guess whether it's going to be Biden or Newsom or somebody else on the Democratic side. But this is going to be I'd love to the, guess the about election. that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's fun to speculate, but I have no clue. Yeah. Uh, but um, that's the, the, the general election in all likelihood will be a referendum on the economy, and that doesn't bode well for Democrats current, on our current trajectory. But, you know, the, what's taking place in the House of Representatives and the Senate is really, really fascinating because you have two bodies that are moving in completely opposite directions. You have these caps that were established by the Fiscal Responsibility Act, and that, that act is only a couple months. Old, not even a couple months old at this point. The Senate, as I mentioned earlier, is already trying to spend more than the caps allow, whereas the House has reduced spending below what the caps allow for in their appropriations process. So they're literally moving in opposite directions. And of course, Biden wants to spend more, so Biden is associated with the Senate here. How they resolve this is a real mystery to me, because if they don't resolve it, we're looking at a shutdown at the end of September going into the new fiscal year. Um, so what's likely is they pass some sort of patch to get the federal government funded until January. And then here's one really interesting thing about the Fiscal Responsibility Act. If they haven't locked in spending levels come January 1, 2024, there's an across-the-board cut that takes place. Most, re- most Democrats and a lot of Republicans don't want that to happen because when you're cutting across the board, you're hitting not only the programs you don't like, but also the programs that you do like. Um, so come January 1, that is really going to be a huge inflection point for what's taking place in Washington. I think members of Congress and their staff and whatnot are, are going to have to probably hold off on their New Year's Eve celebrations, if my predictions are right here, because we're looking at an absolute bare-knuckle brawl over what uh, what levels we're funding the government heading into the new year. Wow. And and that is really fascinating, actually, just in terms of, uh, you know, if that 
happens, how that will uh, play into or affect uh, the GOP primary, if at all. Um, and, you know, as, as we've discussed, obviously, uh, the the economy is a bigger issue uh, in terms of clash for the general election. But, um, you know, if there's somebody else on the Democrat side that's uh, wanting to take over from Joe Biden, how that uh, how that influences even perhaps uh, the DNC primary, I think, will be quite fascinating. So um, in just the last few minutes I have with you here, uh, Brandon Arnold, he's the executive vice president of the National Taxpayers Union. Um, in an ideal world, and, and obviously there isn't ideal legislation that can be passed under almost any circumstances, but in an ideal world, what does the United States need to do right now to reverse uh, this trend for a possible recession and all of uh, the inflation skyrocketing? Yeah, I, I don't think it requires rocket science here. I think there is a path forward on the tax bill that I mentioned. There are some Democratic tax priorities that could be married with some of these important Republican tax priorities to get our economy uh, where it needs to be. I think spending restraint is absolutely important. Spending has absolutely fueled higher inflation. So keeping our spending in check, following those caps that were set by the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Permitting reform to produce more energy domestically. It's good for national security. It's good for economic security. Helps with inflation. And then trade policy. This has become increasingly controversial. But when we're looking at massive tariff increases, those are increasing not just prices for consumers, but also prices for our manufacturing sector to get in raw materials, intermediate goods, and turn those into finished products and sell them not just to Americans, but to people all across the world. That's good for our economy. It's good for, good for job growth. And it's something that you know has been the backbone of the Republican Party for a long time, going back to certainly Ronald Reagan and beyond. And I think we need to reclaim that mantle of, of freedom across the globe. And so for people who are concerned about their own families and their own uh, economics and, and, you know, their their own uh, well-being in the United States, it, it seems like this is such a, a top level issue that, you know, it's one that we can only react to. Um, is there a way that you would advise uh, p- people who are very concerned about this to get involved in the process? And, uh, you know, is there anything that they can do in terms of you know, advocating uh, for a more sound economy? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is be in touch with your member of Congress, be in touch with your senators, tell them how important these issues are to you, be respectful, be kind, but tell them you're passionate about this because you're seeing the prices at the gas station, you're seeing the prices at the grocery store, you're looking at your utility bills. And it would almost be funny if it weren't so painful to pay these things because the prices have gotten insanely high. Some of these problems are global problems that are outside the purview of Congress and the president, but a lot of them are self-inflicted wounds, and we need to stop shooting ourselves in the foot with bad fiscal policies, with too much spending, with high taxes, you know, all these regulations that we've seen come out of this administration that have made it so difficult for American companies to bring their products to market. Uh, we, we need to put this to an end, and people need to be more engaged with their members of Congress about these topics, about these real kitchen table yeah. topics. Yeah, I, I would say people need to be engaged with their members of Congress, their uh, state and local legislators, and you know, state and local officials um, on every topic, because that's the only way that we the people actually get any representation. Uh, so Brandon Arnold, Executive VP at the National Taxpayers Union, 
thanks so much for your time today. And uh, we are already out of time this morning on Jenna Ellis in the morning. You can always reach me and my team, Jenna at AFR.net. Always appreciate hearing from you and make it a great day. I will see you tomorrow morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.